Hi everyone, I'm Liam and this is Words with Woman. Welcome to another episode of Words with Woman. This month, we're celebrating Black History Month at Women in Management Network through all of our social media and platforms. Our guest for today is Portia Boston. She's an inclusivity educator and diversity trainer based in New York City. Currently, she leads DEI training, diversity, equity, and inclusion for large-scale organizations, fitness studio owners, and individual wellness professionals to help them create more inclusive business models and ultimately help them better serve their own communities. For today's episode, Portia will be sharing with us her story and insights as a diversity and inclusion coach. So join us for words of advice, words of wisdom on your bi-weekly podcast, Words with Women. Welcome back to Words with Women. This month is a very special month. It is Black History Month, which is a time to celebrate and remember all the ways that the Black community contributed to history and culture. And today we're joined by Portia Boston, who is based in New York City. She's not only an inclusivity educator, but also a diversity trainer. Welcome, Portia, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And Aman is back with us on the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here once again. I'm really excited for this conversation, and I'm really happy that we're having it today during Black History Month. And before we dive into the question, I was just curious about how's New York in COVID-19? Is it busy still? I mean, it's definitely different. I was in the city from the beginning, like all the way up until now, pretty much. I've pretty much stayed local. Obviously, in the very beginning of the pandemic, the city pretty much shut down overnight. And it was essentially like that for three months or so. It was a very, it was a pretty like serious uh, lockdown. And then things started to kind of like slowly open up over the summer, like when the case counts were pretty low. And it sort of felt like old New York, um, like pre-pandemic New York (laughs) a little bit. And then, I mean, things are still happening. I feel that the population is definitely a lot smaller. Um, It feels like a lot more of a local crew. Obviously, there's not many tourists here, so it feels a little less dense. But I mean, you know, it's still, to me, it's still one of the greatest cities in the world. So I still feel lucky to be here. Nice. I was actually in New York last January, so I was so happy that I went before yeah. COVID happened and everything, because that was my last trip. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely different than pre-pandemic New York, but I, I think it's still lovely. To start off the conversation, I know that you're very active on social media about diversity and inclusion, and you've been part of the fitness industry for so long. I would love if you can share with us your journey and give us a little bit of a background about yourself. Yeah, so I got into the DEI, which stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. I got into this space pretty much via the fitness industry and wellness Mm -hmm. industry. Uh, To make a long story a lot shorter, I came to New York for school and I studied musical theater. I graduated school. I was auditioning pretty much right away. 
you know, my agent was sending me on different projects for different things. And I did a couple of little small things, but I had to take up what we call a survival job, right, to pay the bills. And one of my friends suggested from school, she said, hey, you should teach this fitness class called bar, like B-E-R-R-E, like ballet bar. And I said, sure, what the heck? And I auditioned, I essentially got the job. And then the rest is really history. I started personal training. I started, you know, I got a whole bunch of certifications. I learned about pre and postnatal fitness. I started teaching other bar teachers. Then I eventually even managed a fitness studio at one point. And while all this was happening, I realized pretty quickly that there was a diversity and inclusion problem within the industry as a black woman teaching in New York City, right, of all places, one of the, you know, most culturally diverse places in the world, it became extremely clear to me that I was very much like othered in the sense that I felt kind of isolated as a black woman in fitness. I found there was a lot of pigeonholing going on in terms of what jobs I could, you know, accrue successfully and where I would be able to sort of move up in hierarchy. To me, it it was really powerful. And the more I spoke to other people of color in the industry, the more I realized that this was a really palpable issue and that something needed to be done. And I felt that I might've been the right person to do it. So actually what happened was last year in like the second weekend of March of 2020, I was supposed to lead a fitness and wellness professionals, like diversity and inclusion, like retreat, essentially like a little weekend intensive that was supposed to be in the second weekend of March. Obviously that did not happen. I rescheduled it. Interestingly enough though, I think there were maybe like two or three sign up or like that weekend, right? I ended up doing the intensive again virtually over the summer. And at that point there were like 16 signups because of what had happened over the summer. And I think, yeah. And I think that is what, and for anybody who doesn't know, just to be out loud, I'm talking specifically about the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and all of the other people whose lives have been taken by police brutality. Essentially that uprising and re sort of invigoration of the Black Lives Matter movement is what led me to dive into this DEI stuff full force. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of how I ended up where I am now. Yeah. Wow. Did you find there was a difference before and after this movement, especially like in the fitness industry and what you've seen in your career? Absolutely. I mean, we went from like, I don't know, 25% engagement and interest in these issues to like almost 100% like at the height of the summer. And then it started to trail off as I expected it would like interest and enthusiasm for the movement started to trail towards the end of August, beginning of fall, and you know, started to kind of trickle down after that. But I mean, there is a huge, huge marked difference (laughs) between spring of 2020 and summer of 2020 in terms of people's interest in these issues. I remember as well, just during summer, it was a very powerful thing, like just to see on social media, how everyone was engaged, everyone was sharing on their social media. And like I would say a very remarkable increase in people's awareness. I'm talking about it out loud, not just. Yeah, it was just amazing. All the companies and all, all of the organizations that we commonly know, and everyone's just taking part in it in a way that we haven't seen before. It was really great to see. 
Yeah, it was really great to see. I think what will sort of stand the test of time is, are these people going to feel the same way? Are they going to follow through on all of the promises that they made last year in two or three years from now Mm -hmm. or five years from now? Are we going to look back on this moment and see that certain companies follow through or certain companies were, you know, a little bit more performative in terms of their outspokenness? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah. How how can we actually effectively discuss or express our concerns with our loved ones, as you said, family, friends, about racial issues and injustice? Is there a way like to approach the subject or like how to create that safe space between them as well? Yeah, so there is a really specific way to um, approach having difficult conversations with our loved ones, particularly when we feel that they may hold harmful opinions or don't really understand the urgency or necessity of of our own involvement in particular movements, let's say. So yes, there is a very specific (laughs) way to do this that's going to yield the most productivity. Obviously, you yourself, whoever is starting the conversation, you most importantly need to know what you want to get out of it. You need to know you have to head into the conversation with a goal, essentially, because if you don't have that, it's much easier for this type of conversation to go off the rails. Because it's already so emotionally loaded, you have to be really, really clear on what you want to get out of it and actually speak that out loud to the person that you're talking to. Another thing that I would say is you also have to understand that this may take an emotional toll on you, right? This is going to take a lot of energy and you have to really believe that whoever it is you're speaking with about this, that it's worth it for you to invest this emotion and energy into the conversation um, so that in the chance that something doesn't go your way, that the conversation doesn't go your way or it becomes too emotional, that you are okay releasing that. Um, Otherwise, it can just feel really defeating. So I always say to people, before you approach this, know that the conversation may not go your way. It may not end as productively as you would have hoped. And you have to be okay with that and perhaps be ready to come back to it on another day. And, you know, ask that of the person that you're speaking with. Yeah, I was just going to say, because it's <laughs> definitely like a process. It's not something that you do overnight. And I, I would assume that it requires a lot of patience from you, from the other person, mm-hmm. especially if it's someone that you care about. Uh, because obviously, if it's a stranger, like you wouldn't actually waste your time or anything. Like it, it's not really worth it. But if it's right. someone you care about, I would imagine that it needs a lot of patience and strength to like hold it and wait for the other person to actually see it from your perspective as well. Exactly. Yeah. It's definitely not like a you have one conversation and you conquer all of yeah. racism and, and prejudice in the world. You know, it is <laughs> definitely an ongoing practice. And there are some basic strategy things too. I I think that could make it a little bit easier. Number one, see if you can establish a baseline agreement in terms of what you both believe, right? If you both believe or can establish that racism is wrong and present, 
great. You know, you have that to work from. If you can both agree that the system is broken, great. You know, then you have that Mm -hmm. you can always come back to. So establishing that, just making sure that you're being a good listener, obviously, because in this case specifically, the more you're able to listen to somebody else, the more likely it is that they're going to be able to listen to you and hear you out. So you want to have that mutualistic exchange for increased productivity for sure. Mm -hmm. I like how you said before that you had a presentation about bringing it up with your families because I remember something on the internet that was saying Mm -hmm. until you don't change it at home you can't change it in the world and I thought that really applied here but I'm just wondering I'm curious do you ever find any like resistance when you do these presentations in the workplaces or in your classes for example like your fitness classes? You know, it's not something that I have struggled with personally. A lot of the people who I work with are seeking out these kinds of tools or this kind of work specifically, or they're seeking out this kind of information. So the resistance usually doesn't come from like my clients or people that I work with. Mm -hmm. What will happen occasionally is on my Instagram, I will just have people who I don't know, essentially like trolling Mm -hmm. my account. (laughs) That happens, but that is just part of the territory. But I I typically don't experience a lot of resistance with my clients. It's usually people who I don't know, um, who are just trolling basically it's always online (laughs) it's always online and they they always have like some bizarre profile picture that's like not of their place it's very weird yeah (laughs) that's the only place where they can actually do it and like just protected behind their screens right Another aspect that is really important is like the daily microaggressions to happen in everyday life. And especially for people who are not part of the Black community, um, I think it's really crucial to be able to recognize them and speak up when they have in front of us. Yeah, so a microaggression is essentially an everyday or pedestrian or commonplace behavior or verbal exchange that communicates some sort of derogatory messaging or harmful messaging. So a lot of times they can get passed off as offhanded or backhanded compliments. So a good example of one is a verbal one would be that I used to get all the time is, oh my gosh, you're so articulate. But like I said, with surprise, Mm. right? Like I'm not supposed to be. (laughs) Or another really common one, let's say for an Asian American person who was born and raised here, someone will ask them, well, where are you from? And they'll say, I'm from Chicago. And someone will say, no, but where are you really from? from? Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, So that's another form of a very common microaggression behaviorally, right? Let's say there's someone in the elevator, like a white woman in the elevator and like, a really tall, dark-skinned black man walks into the elevator and then the woman suddenly like goes in the corner and like holds her purse closer or something like that. Or somebody's walking down the street and there's a black person or brown person walking toward them and then they decide to cross the street, right? Like those are all forms of microaggressions. They are everyday and sort of commonplace, but they ultimately are very harmful. They're micro, right? Sort of small, but ultimately represent macro or you know much larger beliefs in society so that's kind of what microaggressions look and feel like yeah and I think like the real issue about this is the fact that it's repetitive it's not a one-time thing that happens 
um, it's more of a buildup that happens over time because I definitely heard from other people saying it's not that big of a deal. Why would you get upset or similar sentences to this? Uh, but really, it's more of the reoccurrence of the same actions or the same words or hearing them over and over again that makes them impact the person emotionally and mentally, of course. Yeah, no, yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head. It's the sort of cumulative power of these behaviors or exchanges that happen over time, right? And that really starts to compound on an emotional level, on a mental level, you know, after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years of somebody's lifetime. So yeah, I, you, really I think you nailed it you know in the short term it doesn't seem so bad um, but in the long term it's extremely harmful Mm -hmm. when it comes to well-being so what would you recommend as in like the best way to respond to racist or offensive remarks by made by others either it's like strangers colleagues co-workers what would be the best approach in these situations so again it's whether whether you're the person who is on the receiving end of it, whether you're the subject or you're a bystander and you're standing up for somebody else. Again, you have to decide whether or not the person that you want to respond to, if it's going to be worth it for you to explain why what they did was wrong. Because if you constantly call people out, Mm -hmm. like no matter who they are, no matter what their relationship is to you, you're going to exhaust yourself emotionally and mentally. So you have to pick and choose where you want to put your energy. If you decide that this is somebody who you want to invest in for whatever reason, then the first thing to do is to acknowledge the possibility that they made a mistake, that they acted out of ignorance instead of out of blatant hatred, perhaps acknowledge the fact that they didn't realize that they did something harmful and saying something along the lines of, hey, I don't know if this was your intention or if you know the person. I know this wasn't your intention, but what you just said to me or what you just said to so-and-so or this thing that you did to me or to so-and-so made me uncomfortable or really hurt my feelings or made me feel XYZ because it upholds stereotypes. It upholds what you just said, upholds really harmful beliefs and stereotypes and mistruths about Black people. And this is why, and this is actually the historical context, and this is why it's wrong for you to say it to me or to anybody else. So there is definitely a strategy to it in terms of, you know, number one, there's like a very much a structure acknowledging that the person may have acted out of ignorance, then saying, you know, this is why what you said was wrong and here's how to not do it in the future. You know, if, if that's something that you decide you want to add on, because in order for what you say to be productive, the other person has to not be blocked by any sort of defensiveness, because what happens a lot when somebody says something harmful is somebody else will immediately kind of say, well, you're racist, what you just did is really racist, and you're racist, and these are all the reasons why. Mm -hmm. And that rarely works um, in terms of productivity, because the other person, all they're going to hear is this person thinks I'm racist. And that's such a loaded word, especially in the US. I, I, I feel a lot that people are more scared and more worried about being called racist than actually solving racial Mm -hmm. issues. 
because it's an attack they feel it's an attack on their identity who they are Mm -hmm. it's like telling them you're not a good person uh you're not doing the right thing yeah right and especially in the U.S. the word racist the association that people have immediately is like the KKK and people in white hoods and tiki torches and like confederate flags and that's not necessarily what being racist actually means right right? um so people take extreme extreme offense to that have very intense emotional visceral reactions and then that's all that they hear and then they're just defending themselves you know for Mm -hmm. the rest of the time and nothing gets done so you have to try to avoid like the direct confrontational approach and see if you can communicate to them you messed up you did something wrong you made a mistake I'm not saying you're a terrible person but what you did or said is unacceptable and this is why right that's very different from calling someone a racist because immediately their brain just goes a million places and you're not going to be able to say what you need to say Mm -hmm. yeah it's almost like creating the distance between the person and the behavior so right. you can able be able to tackle the behavior and let them be aware that it's not acceptable but it's not necessarily an attack on who they are themselves exactly exactly it's the idea of being called a racist that blocks a lot of conversations from happening mm-hmm. yeah there's other ways to communicate it essentially yeah definitely i agree we're often in a lot of places is, for example, even in classrooms, mm-hmm. or when you're with your friends, and there are some of these red flags that we see that we can tell that it's not inclusive, but we often kind of ignore it in a way, because there's so many people or there's the atmosphere is different. So what are some of these red flags that you can talk about? I mean, I would say a red flag, but not necessarily a deal breaker is if I walk into a space either, you know, virtually or otherwise, and I see that I'm the only person of color, period, like maybe in a room of 10, 15, 20 people, I would notice that right away, right? Again, I would say that's a red flag, not necessarily an immediate deal breaker. Also, I think any time for me that there is silence around issues of racial injustice, whether that's outside in the world or within company culture or within company experience or company history. Any sort of silence around that is a very big red flag and potential deal breaker for me personally. And I obviously cannot speak for every Black person or every person of color, but I would guess that that's a pretty big deal breaker for many other people of color. Another one that I'm thinking of as well is if there's any sort of defending or excusing of unacceptable behavior around cultural exclusivity, if there's any sort of someone's making an excuse or even justifying the behavior, you know, in a covert way, that's a really big red flag mm-hmm. as, as well. Okay. Um, I also was wondering, like, what can those outside of the Black community do to support Black Lives Matter as a movement or just in general? We also wonder, I myself, I always wonder, what can we do as people who are not part of the Black community to 
support the movement and also make sure these voices are heard. Do you have any suggestions or anything that you would like to share with people who are listening to us? Yeah, I would say actually number one, one of the most important things people can do, non-Black people, is to talk to their family members, is to talk to people that are close to them, particularly anybody who holds harmful beliefs, you know, in your close circle. That is extremely powerful because whatever starts in your household is going to expand, right, out into your community and whatever happens in your community is going to expand out into the world, right, and so on and so forth. So, you know, talking to people in your close circle, calling out inappropriate behavior or inappropriate verbal communication whenever you see it, that's the difference between being anti-racist and not racist. Somebody who's not racist doesn't necessarily hold harmful beliefs, but sees it happen and doesn't do anything. Somebody who is anti-racist actively opposes that behavior or that type of communication. So, I mean, that's number one. Number two, if you feel comfortable going to protests when they happen, you know, peaceful protests, that's obviously an amazing thing to do. You also, if you're not comfortable with that, you can donate, right, to BLM organizations or affiliates. BLM is actually a part of a larger umbrella organization called Movement for Black Lives. And there's a whole bunch of other orgs and foundations that are tied in with that, um, that can show you exactly how to get involved. For example, the Movement for Black Lives right now, they're trying to pass an act in the United States called the Breathe Act, which essentially helps to reallocate funds from traditional policing and investing it into communities. And there's lots of different, you know, steps that you can take. You can share things on social media. You can lead a virtual teaching. You know, you can share your own stories or encourage other people that you know to share their stories so that it has a greater chance of making it to Congress, right? There's a million different things that you can do. Um, It really depends on what your interests are and what your strengths are and, and how you feel you can contribute the best. I mean, the other thing to do is just to Google it, right? Like yeah. Google <laughs> anything else, you can look up how you can put your town, whatever you're interested in, BLM, and Definitely. you know, find something to kind of push you along. I love that you mentioned the definition and the difference between not racist and anti-racist. I mm-hmm. think that's like a huge thing to keep in mind because a lot of us, and I've heard it a lot uh, from people when they say, it's it's not my problem or I'm not being racist towards anyone I'm not doing anything bad but they forget the other piece which is being also anti-racist that you have to like be proactive about your action and do something about it even if it doesn't touch you on a personal level but yeah I really love that piece (laughs) yeah no that's exactly right there's a big difference between being not racist and and anti-racist but but we really need anti-racism to sort of move forward, mm-hmm. right? We'll also share all some of these resources at the end of our episode on our social media. So people who decide to do something about it or contribute in some capacity will be able to do that. But thank you so much for sharing all these details. Definitely appreciate it. And yeah, yeah. and I think some reasons why maybe companies or clubs might not do this is it, it can be like a touchy topic, even if it, even if it shouldn't be a touchy topic. No, you're right. It definitely shouldn't be. And I think that's a barrier that everybody kind of has to get over. The discomfort is 
temporary, first of all, it's a big part of, you know, making a change. So, Mm -hmm. you know, without sounding too curt, everyone really has to get over like the discomfort and like the fear of it, because that's, that's a very small part of your problems. You know, if you invest that much like emotional energy and anxiety and just doing and just starting it, then you have a long way to go, right? So you'll save a lot of time and energy if you just get over that part (laughs) and, and start to invest more time in creating solutions. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We will move to the last section of our podcast, which is the rapid three, two, one. So we have three questions. Uh, For the first question, we'll have a three word answer. The second question will have a two word answer. And the last question will have a one word answer. So (laughs) for the first question, what are the three values that got you where you are today? Well, this is a hyphenated word, but I'll say hard work or merit. Yeah. Self-belief. <laughs> That's a hyphenated yeah. word. Um, and then I would say compassion. Okay, perfect. And for the second <laughs> question, what are two things that make you feel motivated or inspired? I would say my clients. So the people that I work with who are really invested in anti-racism and really want to just learn and soak up everything they can and are trying to make a difference in their communities and having tough conversations with people that they care about. My clients really inspire me constantly. They're really the reason that I keep doing this. And I would also say that my sort of like philosophical heroes, so people like Angela Davis and... Malcolm X and Audre Lorde, you know, those kind of people also inspire me, I think, and keep me going. And for the last question, what is one skill that you think is important in all aspects of life? If you have to pick one skill, what would it be? I would say resiliency. I think being Mm. resilient is definitely a skill and it's an extremely, extremely beneficial skill (laughs) to have. I agree. And be resilient. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I personally learned a lot through this call and through just having you with us. Thank you. And yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.